you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, as it is our joy and delight to open up God's Word and to hear His message to us this morning as we carry on through our exposition of this wonderful chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11. This morning we'll begin in Genesis 22 and then turn to Hebrews 11. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. The third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you are familiar with the name Susanna Wesley, the godly mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. What you may not know of Susanna and her husband Samuel is that they had not just those two boys, they actually had 19 children. However, nine of them never made it out of infancy, and only eight children outlived Susanna at the time of her death. In other words, she buried 11 out of her 19 children. No parents should have to bury their own, let alone 11 of them. And yet this was just one of many trials of faith that this godly woman was put through. And so, yes, she was very much a a godly woman, and she'll be known for her godliness, but that godliness, in a sense, came at a cost because it was tested and it was tried, but it was found to be true and lasting. And all of these deaths of 
her children came because of circumstances outside of her control. If she could have intervened or prevented any one of them, she would have done so. Any parent would. So, can you imagine what it would be like to be asked to willingly offer up one of your own, to be the cause of the death? And you would say that is just completely unfathomable, and it is. And yet, that is exactly what we read in our passage this morning that Abraham was asked to do by the Lord, to offer up his long-awaited promised son as an act of faith and obedience unto God. And it demonstrates very clearly that faith, if we're going to have faith, that that faith is going to be tested. It's going to be tried. In fact, all that desire to live a godly life will need to walk through the fires of trials and tribulation. And to do so, it will bring pain. It will discover sin. It will show other loves. But in the end, in the hands of a master surgeon, it will bring health and spiritual life. Life that will produce fruit. The fruit of a greater love, of a greater trust, and yes, even of a greater faith. And so this morning we see that Abraham was tested in a mighty way. And so too will you be tested in your walk and in your faith. And so we look at this passage this morning. We look to Abraham, to his faith, and we try to see the lessons that can help us in our day of testing and in trial. So we'll see that in two points this morning, the test of faith and then the provision for a tested faith. First, the, the test. As I mentioned last week in our exposition of this, we are now entering into the second half of Hebrews chapter 11. The first half has us to know this object of our faith. Our faith is to be in God alone. And now the second half of this chapter is testing that faith to see that our faith is truly in God alone. And you can see how those two points are vitally important and cannot be separated. That our faith is to be in God alone, in Christ alone, but you might ask the question, but how do I know? And you know because you'll be tested and you'll be tried. And so the scripture tells us on various occasions, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, for example, we, we are to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. Paul even says right there to test yourselves. Again, Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And so we are to examine ourselves. We are, in a sense, to test ourselves, to see that we are in Christ and we're to do this constantly. In fact, we do this every time we come to the Lord's table. We're supposed to have this internal heart check to make sure that we are truly eating and drinking by faith, that we are 
being worthy participants of the Lord's Supper, that you could say that that is a, a wellness, a spiritual wellness checkup that we have. But hopefully we are doing it much more than just once a month. We are to continually examine ourselves. But even by saying that, we have to admit that human nature is such that we never test ourselves as well as when others test us. Right? That is why in school, teachers do not just ask the students how they think they are doing, how well they think they are mastering the subject material. Right? Students, if your teachers did that, you might think, well, I I know it pretty well. You might even say, I know it 100%. But when they give the tests, when they give the exams, it proves otherwise. The same is true with our physical health. This is why we have a coach or a trainer or go to the doctors to do a checkup because we know that they will test us, that they will try us harder than we will try ourselves. Recently, I did a retirement readiness test, and I found out, not unexpectedly, that 2021 will not be the year of my retirement which is okay, but the point of it was to make sure that you would be ready in the time that you're that age to do so. You get the point. We're not as strong or as secure as oftentimes we think we are. We need outside sources to check up on us, and the same is true with our faith as well. God does so by sending trials into our life, and it's not because he doesn't know the state of our faith, or because of the love of our heart or our mind. No, he knows that fully and completely. The problem is we do not know it. And so the trials and the tests oftentimes will reveal the weaknesses. It'll reveal the cracks and the dross, that which would not be revealed unless we would go through the furnace, so to speak. That's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, when he says you've been grieved by various trials, in order that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You hear what Peter is saying, that you need the, your faith to be tested, to test the genuineness of it, so that you would see how precious this faith really is. Well, that is what we see in spades in the life of Abraham. Abraham was asked to go through the crucible to be tested by the most difficult of commands, to offer up his son on the altar. And I barely need to recite the background to this story for you to understand why this would have been such a test. For God had promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 that through his seed, the seed of Abraham, that all the earth would be blessed. But the problem with that promise was that God made him wait for the fulfillment. In fact, Abraham had to wait 20 plus years for his son to be born. But even before he sent his son, God changed Abraham's name. He changed it from Abram to Abraham. And you might not think that that is important, but it's extremely important because Abraham 
literally means father of a great nation. And so you can imagine every time that Abraham went to introduce himself, he introduced himself as a father of great nations. And no doubt the question would come, well, Abraham, father of great nations, how many children do you have? And he would have to admit, well, I have none. And no doubt there would be smirks and there would be chuckles and people laughing and mocking, probably to his face and no doubt behind it. In other words, every time Abraham said his name, he was making a confession of faith. He was confessing his faith because his reality did not reflect his name. And you could imagine the amount of frustration that would have caused and the humiliation. We know that there no doubt would have been an internal struggle. We know that there was a struggle between him and his wife. In fact, they even tried to take matters into their own hands, and that's why we have Ishmael. And no doubt there was an external pressure as well. But finally, finally, the promise came true. It became reality, and we saw that a few weeks ago with the faith of Sarah, that's out of these two bodies, as good as dead, Hebrews says, comes forth life. And it says that they named him Isaac, which means laughter. And perhaps with that, it was a a double meaning. Yes, laughter, because Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to have a child in such an old age, but it also could mean that this little bundle brought such joy that it literally brought laughter to them in their old life. And no doubt you could understand what this relief they would have felt with holding this promised child. And so all was well in Abraham's world, but then we come to Genesis chapter 22, and we see there that God calls Abraham and tells him to take his son and offer him on the mountain, which I tell you. Now, this wasn't the first time that Abraham was tested. No doubt, leaving his country, leaving his people was a test. No doubt, waiting for Isaac was a test, but nothing would compare to this test. And yet, all that we hear of the command of God is that which was in verse 1 of chapter 22. That is all the knowledge that is given to Abraham of what he needed to do. But from it, I think we can say that this was a test on three fronts. That from this severe test, we can learn something about tests in general, as well as our tests in particular. First of all, we know that this was a test of knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, knowledge of God. We say in our purpose statement that we want to know God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to to know his character. It means to know his reputation, to know his faithfulness, to know who he is, who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. And that is exactly what Abraham had to do as well. And Abraham knew God. It had been several years since his conversion. He knew that God was 
flawless in every account, that God had kept his word, that he was reliable, that he was trustworthy. But no doubt this command called everything that he knew of God into question. In many ways, it's somewhat like the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden and hence failed. But what was the the test? What was the temptation there? Satan or the serpent called into question the goodness of God. And we know that Eve went with her own understanding and that of the serpent rather than that which she knew and had been revealed to her by God. Well, this was very much the same. What was Abraham going to do? Was he going to go upon the knowledge that he knew of God or was he going to go upon his own understanding? Now, we know that our temptation isn't going to come like this. We're not going to receive a direct command from God. That seems contradictory to his nature, to his character. But we realize that oftentimes there's circumstances in our life and the world around us that will seemingly call God's character into question. Right? We'll see something, we know something of God, but then we see something that happens in our life or in the world, and we go, those two things don't seem to line up. They don't seem to be congruous together. And so what is it that we're going to believe in that moment? Are we going to walk by faith, or are we going to walk by sight? What we know to be true, or what we see with our eyes? And so, therefore, the test of knowledge then turns into a test of trust. And we see that with Abraham as well. As I mentioned, Abraham was not given much details. He's not given the the what or the how, and he's surely not given the why. That is the same in our own trials so often, isn't it? In our own pain, in our own suffering, we, we want to know why, and we ask that question often, why God? Why is this happening? Why is this taking place? Why have you allowed this to be? And so often, that question doesn't seem to be answered. There seems to be silence. We're not given all the details or all the reasons why. But it comes down to a test, doesn't it? Are we going to trust? Are we going to trust ourselves and our own finite knowledge and our own finite understanding? Or are we going to trust God and his infinite wisdom who knows the beginning from the end? And so when we're lost in the perplexity of the moment, when all is confusing, we need to come back to the foundation. We need to rely upon that which we know, not that which we do not know. Because if we rely upon that which we do not know, we will be lost. And we'll be lost very quickly. Now where I grew up in California, in the Central Valley, we would receive these times and periods where they would have this great fog that would come in to the Central Valley of California. And I know what all of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh yeah, I've experienced fog. No, you haven't experienced fog until you've experienced this kind of fog. Because this fog would limit your sight from, from less than 20, sometimes 10 feet. 
And there would be times where you would get caught in it. You would be traveling in it. You would be driving in it. And it would come and descend so quickly. And all you could do when you were driving is to, to look at the left-hand side and, and see the yellow dotted line and the, the right-hand side and see the white line and, and make sure you stay in between those so as to be able to make it where you're going. And in the same way, we need to have those lines. The, on the one hand, it's the understanding of who God is, the knowledge of him, and on the other side, the, the trust of that knowledge in who he is. That if we stray on either side, we're going to run into damage and run into it very quickly. And so the question is, can we trust him in those moments? Can we trust him in the fog of life, in those times that we do not understand or we don't see far down the road? And that then leads to probably the most severe test, the test of affection, the test of devotion, or perhaps you could even say of worship. Would Abraham love the Lord his God above all else? And we understand that that is quite clear in the command that is given to Abraham, because it doesn't just say, well, sacrifice a son, any son. It doesn't even say, sacrifice your son. No, it says, no, take your son, your son Isaac, the one in whom you love. You see, this is a test of the heart. And Christianity as a true religion is a religion of the heart, isn't it? It's never just about outward conformity. Outward conformity is never enough. No, we are told that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says all of the commands hang on this. All of it is summarized in that. And so our tests will often be a test of love, of devotion, of affection. Until you get down to the matters of the heart, you haven't gotten to the heart of the matter, so to speak. The heart of the trial. The heart of the test. And the question is, who or what has our hearts? And we need to realize that everything that God gives us, other than himself, we need to hold loosely. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Everything that God has blessed you with. You understand that it comes down from God. It comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Many of you know of the recent health scare of one of our children in the weeks leading up to that diagnosis. I kept coming back to that thought that even my, my children are not my own, Lord. They are yours, but by all means, be gracious. And he was, and we praise God for that. But we need to understand that, that all of life is a gift from him, and that he has the prerogative to, to give as well as to take away. That's what it was said of Job, right? When all of this was stripped away, what was Job's response? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those words of Job are words of faith. So it's all or nothing. 
Either God has the whole of your heart or he has nothing at all. There is no in-between. That's why Jesus can say, whoever loves father or mother is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And oftentimes we'll read that and we'll say, well, Jesus is, is speaking hyperbole here. No, I don't think he is. I think Genesis 22 would, would prove that. God desires our heart, the essence of who we are, the whole of us, and he will not settle for anything less. Nothing less can be given to him in order for him to be glorified as well as for us to receive that which is good in life. And so the Lord must be our chief love, our chief delight. And the Lord, as the lover of our hearts, gives us that which is good for us. He's not giving us something less. He's not giving us a a substitute that will be worse. No, he's giving us himself, which is the very greatest gift that we can ever receive because in him is all benevolence, is all rest, is all love, all that which is good for us. And the testing and the trials discover that again and again. So this test was a test of knowledge. It was a test of trust. It was a test of devotion. And no doubt in your tests and your trials, you will see that you are tested in various ways, in in one or sometimes all three of these things. But what we see in this passage so clearly is not just the test, but the provision for a tested faith. Because we read on in Genesis 22 that Abraham rose early in the morning, no doubt after a sleepless night, and he traveled three days to the place that the Lord showed him. And he left the servants so that he and the son could make the last trek, this last part of his obedience before going through with the act that the Lord had called him to. And it's on that way that Isaac asked that piercing question, that heart-wrenching question. In verse 7, He says, Father, behold, the fire, the word. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Listen to how Abraham responds, because here is the answer. If you want to know how Abraham could go through all of this, how he could act in obedience, how he could gather all of the supplies, how he could go on this three-day journey, how he could set up this altar and then bind his son and put his son on that altar and then take the knife and was about ready to put it to his throat. We find the reason why Abraham could do it, how he could have such faith because he told us what his faith was in. It says in verse 8, son, God will provide for himself. God will provide for himself. I don't need to know. I don't need to understand. I know that God is fully capable of being his own provider, and he will provide for me in this. And indeed, the Lord would provide, wouldn't he? That this answer was not a a trick, or it was not a half-truth. And it demonstrates that Abraham wasn't some kind of psycho or psychophant to to put his 
son upon that altar. I know he truly believed that the Lord would provide. He just didn't know how. In fact, it says, and the author of Hebrews confirms this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he believed that God could even raise his son from the dead if it be so. And in fact, we see some of that, believe some of that faith when he says to the servants, you stay here and we will go. And then if you understand the verbs there, it really says, and we will come back again. It doesn't say, I, we will go and then I will come back. No, it says, we will go and then we will come back again. Abraham had seen life come from two dead bodies when God gave Isaac to them in their old age. And so he knew that God could do it again. And so, therefore, in obedience, even though it went against every fiber of his being, he knew that obedience would be better in this moment than disobedience. That's faith. That's faith that God will provide. And the Lord did provide. Much more than just in providing a ram. See, we understand that this picture is merely a picture of something much greater. That this story is just a a foreshadowing of a much greater story. That God would not just provide a lamb. No, he would provide another. He would provide another son. He would provide another beloved son. Another one in whom the wood was put upon him. He read that, doing, and we can't help but seeing and, and hearing the Lord Jesus Christ as it says that he took the wood and placed it upon his son. We understand that there would be another son that would carry wood, not wood for burning, but wood for crucifying and he would go up, in fact, he would go up this very same mountain, Mount Moriah, to his own crucifixion and to his own death. So you see that this test, this test of Abraham was much greater than just a test for him. Know that God was doing something far greater than what we see here. This would forever be a symbol of a greater son being given up by a greater father. And we know that because we know Abraham could not provide. He could not provide for his own sins, let alone the sins of anybody else. Isaac could not be the atonement for the world, but the father, the heavenly father, could send his son, and that son could be the perfect atonement for all of the world. The Lord would provide. And so Abraham did not need to go through with this test to the very end. He did not need to plunge that knife into his son because the heavenly father would plunge his wrath into his very own son in the days to come. And so even though Abraham was willing and ready, that's why it says in Hebrews eleven seventeen that Abraham offered perfect tense Abraham offered Isaac because he did so by faith Abraham handed over his son but his faith was in something greater 
His faith was in the one who would provide. And we know from the rest of Revelation that that one that would provide would provide sufficiently. He'd provide completely. He'd provide fully in the giving of his son. And so that is where we can find all meaning and all purpose, all confidence in our trials and all our tribulations that all of them have purpose. And they all have purpose because all of them have been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, your tests, your trials will test you. They will stretch you. They will crush you. They will be more than what you can bear, but they will not be more than what he can bear. It will be a test of knowledge. It will be a test of trust and devotion and all of those things that we talked about. And oftentimes in the test, we will come up dreadfully and woefully lacking and wanting. Don't think that you're going to pass every test with flying colors. No doubt Abraham, even though we would say that he passed this test better than any of us could, probably had many things that he still had to repent of and learn from in the midst of this. So please don't think in your tests and your trials that God is giving these to you to show you that, no, you are an A-plus student in following God because none of us are. They show our weaknesses. They show our cracks. They show the things that need to be crucified in Christ. I know in my own life with the, the trial of of my wife being sick, there was many failures on my part. Many things that I fell woefully short. I had to ask for forgiveness of, of her and of the Lord. That's oftentimes the case, isn't it? But don't think that if those things are revealed, that you have failed the test. No, oftentimes that is the purpose of the test. Because all of it is to make us like Christ. See, if we were making ourselves, then yes, we would have to be perfect, wouldn't we? We would have to, to, to pass the test. But we don't pass the test because we're not like Christ. But Christ, thankfully, has redeemed lost sinners like ourselves. And he is committed to making us like himself. And so therefore, we can rejoice. As James says, when various trials come because they are part of the redemption process. That redemption process that starts here below but will not come into completion until the day of resurrection. See, God's desire is not to try you or test you for the test's sake. No, he's trying and testing you for the son's sake. So that you would be made like his Son, and if you understand that, if you allow that truth to be buried in your soul, then you can understand that not one of your tears then is ever wasted, and not one of your tears that is shed is for naught if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's none of your trials are ever wasted, that not one of your sins and oftentimes there's multiple that are shown through those trials that is not atoned for they're 
is never a, a lesson that could not be learned through it because it is demonstrating how far we fall short, but how great of a Savior we have to come and redeem sinners like us. Because it's demonstrating exactly what Abraham said would be demonstrated, that the Lord would provide. And that's how we stand up in the greatest of trials, in the greatest of temptations. How do we know all of this? How do we know that God will redeem all of our trials and all of our temptations for his purpose and for his glory as well as for our good? Well, we need not look any further than the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul says, right? In Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? See, all things are yours in Christ. And therefore, everything that needed to be given up, everything that sometimes needs to be forsaken, even good things that we give over to the Lord will ultimately be given back to us in life to come. That's what Christ says. He says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and their last first. In other words, Jesus is saying, God is no man's debtor. All will be paid back a hundredfold. Which is a nice way to say that we ultimately have lost nothing if we have given it over, if we have sacrificed it in the sake of gaining Christ, to be made like Christ. But that doesn't mean that it's easy, is it? No, it hardly ever is. But we can remember, again, as Paul goes on in Romans 8, say, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? He says, no, it cannot. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that is what is being demonstrated through all of our trials, through all of our temptations, is that there is a God behind it all who loved us, who loved us enough not to withhold his son, but to give his son as a redemption for us all. And so, yes, the Lord will continue to to teach us. He'll continue to test us. He'll continue to mold us and shape us until that day of redemption in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we faithfully follow him even in the midst of the most severe trials and tests that we may endure? Let me finish with this. The wonderful quote from a Puritan, William Perkins. He says, the best ship that carries the most precious jewels floats on the sea balanced with gravel or sand to sink into the water, so to sail more surely, lest floating too high it would be unstable. Even so, the Lord deals with his servants when he's given them a good measure of his grace, also lays on them hardships so as to humble them, lest they be puffed up in themselves. You hear what Perkins is saying. 
Oftentimes we want to be the vessel that is just carrying the good gifts that the Lord would give us. We don't want this gravel, we don't want this sand to weigh us down. But we understand that if we didn't have the gravel, if we didn't have the sand, we would be like an unstable ship. And when the waves come, we would just be tossed over. That gravel, that sand has its purpose. It has its purpose for us to be stable, to be grounded and rooted in Christ and Christ alone, lest we be puffed up in our own pride. We need to be dependent upon him. And so being dependent on him, we would continue to walk by faith and not by sight. But we have this promise, this promise from Genesis chapter 22, that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He already has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he will provide in the moments of trial and temptation as well. Amen. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful and sacred truth. These things that are too glorious. And what it demonstrates even back in Genesis, that the hope of the believers was upon the resurrection from the dead. Even though they didn't know fully how that would take place, they just fully knew that the Lord would provide, and the Lord indeed has provided in a much greater and more glorious way than we could have ever have imagined in sending your very own son, your beloved son, your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, would we place our faith and hope in that fully and finally, even this morning. And if we do, O oh Lord, then we can face whatever comes our way. No trial or temptation should buffet us or have us to sway, and oftentimes it does. Or would we be reminded that we are grounded and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his love, that love that loves us enough not to allow us to remain in our sin and our wickedness, but to root it out and to make us like your glorious son. Would you continue that work? And Lord, would we, in obedience, faithfully follow so that we would be made fully and completely like your son, that that redemption would have its work in us. Lord, we long for the day when it is made perfect and made right. But until that day, O oh Lord, would you be gracious and would you be kind and would you give us much of your Holy Spirit to help us in the journey there. We pray this all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.